You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Hi, everyone. Last year, IR Magazine uncovered a glass ceiling in the investor relations world. Our global IRO survey revealed that while just about the same number of men and women work in IR, two-thirds of heads of IR positions go to men. And even top female IROs get paid less than their male counterparts. Now, stats like that are pretty familiar throughout the business world. But within the world of IR, the news came as a bit of a surprise. Clearly, more must be done to improve career opportunities for women in investor relations. On today's program, Garnet Roach brings us a special report on improving the role and value of women in IR. No matter how you cut the numbers, if you look at region or you look at cap size, significantly more men make it into the top jobs in IR. That's coming up, but first, here's this week's IR Ticker News Update. All of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. Donald Trump claims to be a climate-warming skeptic. He wants us to think the concept was created by and for the Chinese. It wasn't. Most investors, regulators, and even corporations are pretty clear on that concept. Global sustainable investment grew by 25% between 2014 and 2016. It now stands at about $23 trillion, according to the most recent report from the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance. IR teams are certainly aware that ESG-focused investment is growing. But according to IR magazine research, many admit they rarely get questions on environmental, social, or governance issues in investor meetings. The latest report from IR Magazine and sponsored by Donnelly Financial Solutions is titled Global IR Practice, ESG Communications. The research highlights what IR practice looks like today across reporting, targeting, and other investor communications from an ESG perspective. The survey of more than 350 IR professionals also reveals what investors are asking companies about and how IR departments are conducting ESG communications. You can download the full report at irmagazine.com. Meanwhile, a new study has uncovered how investors are using sustainability reports. Austrian reporting firm Nexar used web analytics tools to analyze a sample of online ESG reports to find out what chapters are actually read. It found the most popular sections, accounting for almost a third of page views, were company information, the corporate responsibility strategy, and data on compliance. Following these sections is an image or magazine section at 14% and classic report chapters on products, production, and suppliers at just 13.5%. And while use of some kinds of company publications, like press releases, might peak early on before being very rarely accessed, Nexar says this isn't the case for sustainability reports. Its statistics show a continuous, interest-specific use throughout the course of the year. Finally, 
more and more companies are facing potential litigation risk for emitting material climate risk disclosure. Most recently, shareholders of the Commonwealth Bank of Australia filed suit in that country's federal court. They're alleging that by failing to include a discussion about climate risk in its latest annual report, the bank had, quote, not given a true and fair view of the financial position and performance of its businesses, unquote. The case is the first time that Australian courts will consider the materiality of climate risk and whether a public company has an obligation to disclose those risks. As I said at the top of the show, there's a value gap in the IR profession. We discovered it late last year after examining the results of our global IR practice survey. And let me just mention we included that research in an entry for the Willis Towers Watson Media Awards, and we're happy to say we won the prize of Best Institutional Investment Publication. We will continue to bang the drum for gender equality. And as part of that campaign, we've launched a new global series of events aimed at exploring how to best address the issue and put pressure on the industry to confront it. I'll have more on that at the end of the program. On the line now is IR Magazine's Garnet Roach to tell us more. So Garnet, how did you first uncover this gender imbalance in IR? Well, we do a big annual IR survey that makes up, in part, our Global Investor Relations Practice Report each year. This looks at the gender split across IR as a whole, um, so that we can get a snapshot of what the industry looks like each year. And in the past, we've also looked at the gender gap when it comes to pay. Um, This year, with more than 1,300 respondents, we decided to look at gender and seniority. And the results really were quite shocking, actually. Um, No matter how you cut the numbers, if you look at region or you look at cap size, significantly more men make it into the top jobs in IR. And you also looked at specific indexes too, right? Yeah, we wanted to look a bit deeper and maybe expand the research a bit. And so what we did was we looked at the gender splits among heads of IR across different indexes. We looked at the FTSE 100, the DAX, the top 100 companies on the S&P 500, and also on the S&P TSX 60. And so the best split that we found was 30% female representation on the FTSE and TSX, while on the DAX at the time that we conducted the research in February this year, just 13% of heads of IR were women. More recently, we looked back on the original data to see if there were any sectors that performed better or worse than others. The consumer and healthcare sectors proved best at promoting women to the top spots in IR, though it should be noted that these sectors are actually more heavily weighted towards women in investor relations in the first place. At the other end of the scale, um, energy and utilities and technology, which we also included uh, communications in that sector, saw fewer than 20% of women taking top positions. And of course, the tech industry is not generally famed for its diversity. um, But the trend doesn't extend to two of the largest tech companies. So Google's parent company, Alphabet, and also Cisco, who we'll hear from later, um, both have IR departments with women at the helm. And you can find a bit more about our most recent research on the website this week. You mentioned the overall gender split across IR as a profession. This isn't generally weighted towards men to start with, is it? No, certainly not. Um, Overall in the profession, there's actually an almost even male-to-female split. It might go up or down by a few percentage points year on year, but generally it's around the 50-50 mark. And it's only as you start to rise up the ranks that you see this sort of dropping off of women. 
And that's one of the things that I've been talking about with Pavita Cooper, founder at talent and diversity firm More Difference, who also sits on the steering committee at the 30% Club. She's been looking at some of the reasons behind this and what women can do to keep climbing that IR ladder. Initial reaction to the research, um, to our finding that despite starting from an almost equal footing in IR, that women only make it into one third of the top jobs? I wasn't surprised because if you read across to the broader financial services sector, that's not unusual. Um, in fact, there was some research published today that shows that less women are going into finance in the first place and I think we're seeing that trend also um, that women are less in, attracted to the industry that's partly because of image, reputation, some stereotypes of what it's like to work in financial services but then we also know that for women trying to progress in the sector and it would be the same within IR there are lots of barriers in place that make it harder and often women opt out themselves and don't want to stay in a culture they feel doesn't fit who they are or how they want to work. And this issue of culture, I mean, what do you think, um, I mean, can you go into a bit more detail around that and maybe what companies could be doing to change that and not just attract more women into investor relations or to financial roles, but to help them to climb up the ranks? So when we talk to women about why they leave organisations, uh, they, will, they will often talk about the environment, the leadership tone set from the top and the culture. They'll talk about that rather than any one specific issue about why they're leaving. And often that's because if you look around and nobody else looks like you and you're not part of the in-group, it becomes very difficult to stay in. And coupled with that, it becomes difficult to work in a way that suits the other demands you might have outside of work, whether that's family or other commitments or other pressures, if you're a carer for elderly parents, if you have other commitments, and it becomes harder and harder to balance those two things. You tend to look around you and say, it doesn't feel like a place I fit. And also the messages being sent from the senior leadership team are to be successful here. It's a 24-7 culture. It's all about winning and succeeding. It's a very male-driven environment. Women, as they find themselves more and more in a minority, get to the top and then they just decide to leave and exit. And they still work, they just choose to work in a very different context. In terms of what organisations could be doing more of, I think the big thing is, you know, you need to have balance in your organisation. You need to have an environment that reflects not just the uh, face of your the customers you're dealing with and the, and the broader stakeholders you deal with, but a culture that feels inclusive to everyone, you know, whoever that is, whether you're a woman or whether you know, you're an LGBT, part of the LGBT community, or if you're someone who's just a bit different, frankly. Many organisations, when you get to the top, everybody looks the same, and that's part of the challenge. And is there anything that women could be doing themselves to try to, I mean, perhaps communicate these issues to, to, their, to those above them, kind of to make it more clear that what they want and that they want to get into the top jobs? What advice would you have for women working? Yes, I mean, I think we always say this can't just fall on the shoulders of women alone in terms of trying to create the change. It has to be men and women working together for change. But, but I do think there are things that women can do. I mean, often women leave very silently. So they will leave an organisation, but they won't necessarily have been articulated what the real issues are. And then I think organisations allow themselves to sort of believe that maybe the woman left because she has a young family or because she found it too hard or because it just didn't work for her. They've never really got underneath understanding what the specific issues were, that actually it was got nothing to do with the fact that one had a family. It was about the fact that she worked in a team where she didn't feel part of it. She worked with perhaps nine men or in an environment that um, what was valued was output, um, uh, was input, not output, like how present you are in your job. So I think women do have a responsibility, not just to help those women coming through behind them, but I think to help shape the sort of culture they want to work in and challenge some of the norms that have been established. What do you think about 
not necessarily quotas, but kind of putting one woman on the leadership team or, you know, sticking one woman here and one woman there as an example of what you're doing around gender diversity? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I don't believe in quotas, but I do believe in targets. I think, you know, organisations that say, well, we work, for example, um, in technology and engineering, there are no women in the pool of talent externally, therefore our senior leadership team represents what's out in the talent pool. I think they'll never change if they don't set themselves some targets, because I think the targets force you to go out and try and influence the pool, so go into schools and colleges, um, and earlier in the pipeline, influence women to come into that industry and sector, and attract more women into it in the first place so I think it's a vicious circle if you just say it's really hard in our sector so that's why there are no women construction is another one for example so I do believe in targets and I think it helps leaders focus that every time they're making an appointment if they know they've got a target rather than just appointing another man if they're saying actually have we done enough on this occasion are there is there at least one woman on the short list do we have a balanced slate have we done enough to look deeper into our organisation, reach down and pull up some women we could have interviewed? You know, are we being realistic? Are we being overly demanding on the requirements of the role? You know, could we be more broad-minded about the skill set? Then you open up the talent pool that's available. So I definitely believe the targets help that. And you mentioned a couple of sectors where this is an issue. Are there any regions or sectors that you think are doing particularly well? So I think historically, things like retail have always done very well because they've attracted more women into the bottom of the entry um, pool um, and therefore you get more women coming through. So I think those sectors have always done well for women. I think what you see though is even sectors which traditionally have had more women populated at the bottom and media might be one, leisure, consumer, retail. What you often see is functions like HR, for example, when you get to the top, they're always still led by men. So there are there are sectors that at entry level attract more women but I think everyone's struggling with the same issue which is how do you get more women to the top I think retail banking has done really well I think there's lots of positive examples of women who are getting to the top but again they're a minority who tend to talk about the same few women over and over again and then my final question was that um so as well as, as well as showing that women aren't necessarily making it into the top jobs in investor relations, our research also shows that they don't get paid as much as men. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on Well, unfortunately, again, I'm not surprised. These are, these are common discussions I have with many women who are looking to move job or move within their own organisation. There's a couple of reasons. One is that often as you become more senior, the point at which you leverage your pay is when you leave and join a new organisation. Many women, if they've found a context which works for them, so they've got the flexibility they need, they've got a role and sponsorship, and um, they've got a, a team and a manager that they work well with, they don't want to trade that off, and often they'll give up moving to another organisation in order to protect the working arrangements they have or a strong working relationship with a strong sponsor and a strong line manager. And therefore, by not leaving, they're losing that opportunity. The second thing is... Now, when I've been involved in hiring women, there's the stark contrast between men negotiating at the point of new job internally or externally versus women is quite stark. So men will always use every opportunity to sort of leverage, how can I get more, how can I negotiate? If a woman, and I'm generalising now, is offered you know, a reasonably competitive package for a role, she'll say yes and not even come back once and say well, that's great, probably more than I was expecting, but let's have another conversation about that. And I think when it comes to internal pay negotiations, again, when I have conversations with women about how they prepare for those, they tend to, again, generalising, often assume that if I just work really, really hard, somebody will notice and the right thing will happen. The organisation will do the right thing by me. And then they're 
often disappointed when they recognise what their male counterparts have been doing is highlighting successes on a frequent basis to a broad range of stakeholders, including their boss, you know, here's what I've done, here's what I've achieved, here's the numbers. Um, and the other thing is that women often won't invest in the time to make sure they understand their market value. So when I ask women, you know, in the last two years, have you been to see a headhunter? Not because you want to leave, because you just want to get a sense of where you are in the market. They'll say, no, because I'm too busy. Um, and I think if you don't have a sense of what your market worth is, it makes it very hard to negotiate from that position. <clears throat> Garnett also asked Cisco Systems Head of Investor Relations Marilyn Mora about that firm's diversity initiatives and how these have impacted IR and the wider finance functions. Well, I have to say we've been long-time supporters of diversity in the workforce. It's really a focus we've had for a long time, and it's focused on an inclusive, collaborative workforce, and it's really a key foundation of who we are as a company and how we operate uh, the company. And that starts from the top whether that be our board and our management team, who really feel that a diverse workforce is made up of differing uh, races, ethnicity, culture, background, are all key ingredients to get differing perspectives, viewpoints, uh, in terms of how we do things, and ultimately has led to success for us at Cisco and getting us to uh, solve big problems for our customers. So very important for our workforce. Now you're probably thinking, how do we do that at Cisco? What kind of programs are necessary to drive this across a very large organization like Cisco, where we have over 70,000 employees? Well, I thought I'd review a couple of programs from a broad Cisco perspective, and then I'll segue what we do in IR and in finance. So from a top-down perspective, we have a couple of programs. First, we're all governed by a key mission statement and a framework we call the Cisco People Deal. It's really defining who we are from an employee base, but it's also talking about what mission we adhere to, which is really about striving for trust and transparency in our culture, and it's about pay parity within our employee workforce. We wanna ensure that every employee, whether you're in engineering, marketing, that that pay is equal across the board, no matter of your uh, background. Second, we have uh, what we call gender-based development programs. And it's really geared at employees who are looking to develop strategic uh, thinking skills, leadership skills, and just to improve their uh, leadership abilities here at Cisco. And it's been a real uh, big success here. Third, we have mandatory training for our managers and for our employees so that we can eliminate any potential bias in the workforce along with uh, in our hiring practices. And then lastly, I wanted to say, not only are we big advocates of diversity, we put our words into action. And that's seen very visibly in the structure of the company, both at the management level, where 36% of our management team are women. And this is really championed by our CEO, Chuck Robbins, who believes in women in leadership roles because of the key attributes they bring to the table. Second is our board. We've got a third of our board made up of women and we have great uh, diversity from an ethnicity standpoint and it's something we're looking to continue to foster and grow over time. So that's how we think about it at a broader Cisco level. Now how does this segue into investor relations and finance, right? Uh, we do even more on top of those programs I mentioned. First, we have something called mentoring rings. And these mentoring rings 
are groups uh, that get together. We have about 13 now, so that number has really grown to 13 global sites. And their real focus is on how do you develop personal, uh, professional branding for an employee. It's about coaching, it's about mentoring to help that employee on their career journey. Second, we have something called the Finance Women's Leadership Program. And that's really focused on attracting, retaining, developing, and celebrating key uh, talented women in the organization. So we want to continue to foster both their growth and the innovation and their contributions to Cisco. And of course, even more importantly than that, is we want to develop the next gen future CFO here at the company. And that program is a key component of that. Uh, I would call out we have uh, training programs, we have uh, quarterly newsletters, and all of these things are offering tips and tricks of how to improve your personal development. And we have things like women of impact, how do we as women increase our influence and impact uh, in an organization with our constituents. And in fact, in that program, we had over a 203% increase in participation given uh, the benefit that uh, women had seen in that program. And lastly, we do a lot of training and workshops for employees in addition to bringing in speakers to give confidence to our employees to further develop uh, their skill set. So I just wanted to wrap up in saying we are continued and committed to diversity in the workforce. Uh, you'll continue to see us do that. And a resu result of all these programs, not only has it driven result for the company, but also for our employees who love coming to Cisco. In fact, we're always top rated as one of the best places to work. And you'll continue to see us invest in these type of programs. So for any of you who are interested in developing diversity programs in your workplace environments, feel free to contact me at uh, Marilyn Mora at Cisco, and I'm happy to help. Lots of stuff coming up this month. If you're an IR professional anywhere near London, New York City, or San Francisco, you'll want to book your place now for IR Magazine's Women in IR series of events. Each session is aimed at improving the role and value of women in IR and features some pretty amazing speakers. That's September 13th in London, September 14th in New York, and September 19th in San Fran. And then next month, October 4th, there's a final networking event scheduled for Toronto. Check out irmagazine.com for all the deets. Plus, the IR Magazine Awards and Conference Small Cap is coming up this Wednesday, September 13th. It's a one-day conference and an award ceremony specifically tailored to small cap companies. It's at Fordham University in New York and held in association with OTC Markets Group. Next, Monday, September 18th, Palo Alto, California. The IR Magazine think tank West Coast 2 2017 is an invitation-only event exclusively for senior corporate in-house IR professionals. It's free to attend and lets you network, discuss, debate, and dissect topical issues affecting today's IROs. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cossette. You've been listening to the Tinker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app. 